They both believe that there's no such thing as a stock market expert. No. They don't exist because nobody can predict the future. That's why investors should only focus on the present and the past. That means they can put their attention on assets, liabilities, past earnings. That's it. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. In this episode of the Most Awesome Founder Podcast, I am back with my dear co-host and collaborator, Professor Dries Foms, for another episode of our inspiration sessions, where we discuss something that made us learn, made us think, and made us laugh, sharing our different thoughts as researchers and practitioners. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. On the plus side, we actually have Dries here in person today at my office here in Berlin. Yes, great to be here in Berlin. It's good to have you back. Um, maybe a, a brief uh, note, what the hell are you doing in Berlin right now? So actually, stage two is ongoing, the big uh, competition where different universities compete with each other for nice startup ideas. So that's why I'm hanging around in Berlin and also will check out the WAU team that is participating also today. Awesome. Awesome. That was, I think last year was the first year. Last year was the first time, yeah. And I was there and it was quite a, an impressive production that they put on and some interesting startups from all over the place, yes, from, yes. I think from London to Italy and, and all places in between. So cool to see. I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of interesting university ventures come out of that. So should be fun. Cool. Well, now that we have this in person, really looking forward to it. Hopefully, um, hopefully we find ourselves well aligned on this. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't tease you as easily since you're standing a meter away from me, but um, I'm going to let you kick this off and let's talk about something that recently made you learn. Yes, and I think it's not a big surprise that I brought another academic paper with me and it's called The Lean Startup Methods Early Stage Teams and Hypothesis-Based Probing of Business Ideas by Michael Letterby and Rita Katila. And it was published in 2020 in the Strategic Entrepreneurship Journal. And as the title already indicates, it's a paper on the lean startup approach. Now, Garrett, maybe before I delve deep into the nitty gritty details of this paper, can you maybe explain or how would you describe the lean startup approach if you have to describe it to a person that has never heard about it? Mm. Wow, well, I have not read that book in 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanna make sure I get this right. Um, I have to admit, when we had Steve Blank on the on the podcast uh, a year or two ago, that I got nervous that I didn't remember everything from the book. Um, so I, I dug into it a little bit back then. But of course, the Lean Startup is really an evolution of 
Steve Blank's customer development. Yeah. Um, you know, Eric Reese, I think, slapped a nice name on it and, and popularized it a little bit more. But, uh, you know, it's really just a customer-centric, iterative process of, of business design, essentially. You know, there's kind of three core components of it, which is, you know, build, measure, learn, yes. right? And it's, it's generally seen in a, in a circle because yeah. it's iterative and that process, you know, kind of repeats itself as you work your way towards product market fit. I think the one thing that maybe isn't visualized so well is it's really not one circle. Right? It's a bunch of iterative concentric circles yep. within you know, a larger picture. So uh, I think it's more of a, an ethos than a tool. Yep. You know? And uh, put the customer in the center, try things, build something, give them something to give you feedback on, learn from that, you know, rinse, wash, repeat. Yeah, I think actually that's, that's a very nice summary. Uh, so it's about you formulate some hypotheses, you get out of the building to test them using customer interviews or other kind of validation techniques. And based on the output of your experiments, you pivot your business model, might be small changes or bigger changes depending on the output you receive. And that's the kind of iteration that you repeat multiple times to gradually move towards uh, product market fit. Yeah, that's a bit how typically Lean Startup would be uh, described. And so, as you said, uh, Eric Ries has published this book that got a lot of attention, was definitely, I would say, building on the shoulders of others, uh, <laughs> to say it like that. Uh, but uh, it's, it's already a book, I think it was 2011, 2012, something like that, when the book emerged. And this is, I think, a field where uh, it's a very good example where I would say academic research has been a bit kind of running behind the, the reality. So I think this notion of Lean Startup has only been embraced quite recently by academics. So actually, um, I think I only saw it emerging, I would say, in the academic atmosphere around 2017, 2018, where at conferences you saw the first people presenting research on it. And I think today we see kind of the first wave of really kind of empirical research that actually tries to academically validate this approach because that's of course something what, what, what we academics need to do is actually to collect the data to see, okay, these kind of guidelines that are provided, can we give a kind of support for these guidelines from an academic perspective? Do we really, if we collect data in a kind of rigorous way, can we provide evidence that teams that follow the Lean Startup approach are more successful than teams that do something completely different? And I think that this paper uh, is one of the first ones that has been published on this. Mm -hmm. And they actually had some nice data. So they actually collected information about 152 teams in a particular setting, namely the iCorps National Science Foundation program which actually was developed by Steve Blank. Oh, yeah. So um, he's the guy who started, or at least was appointed to coordinate the program. He actually initiated in 2011, so uh, actually when the book of Eric Ries also emerged, and then it has been repeated multiple years. And so the scholars that wrote this paper got access to data of these teams, and so they were able to actually measure, okay, how much hypotheses did they formulate, to what extent did they get, get out of the building, and to what extent were they able to pivot their pivot model and over time realize convergence. And so they did some uh, analytic testing, 
And the results were, yes, it makes sense. <laughs> so, <laughs> to give you the very short summary. Uh, I have a feeling they said more than that. <laughs> so this is not the surprising part of the paper. So they found, yes, if teams go outside the building, they are much more able to fine tune their business model. And but I think, and that was interesting, what they've also found was, and when they start converging on their ideas, the number of hypotheses that they formulate will go down. So there is an iteration, but there is also a clear convergence. Because sometimes Lean Startup is criticized that, of course, you can continue iterating and iterating and iterating and go nowhere. But so they saw that the teams that really spent a lot of time in validating their hypotheses were more likely to uh, get to convergence. But now gets, I, I, I wanted to touch about one particular part of the paper with you a bit more deeply. And, and that's where they started looking at who, who, is in, who are involved in the teams. Mm. And in the end, they made a distinction between teams where there was at least one MBA student, so a, an, a student or a person that had an MBA degree, and teams that didn't have MBA students. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, do you think that teams with MBA students were more likely to embrace the Lean Startup approach or less likely to embrace it? <laughs> what would you think? Oh, Based on gosh. your intuition well, and vast experience in the field. This is unpacking a lot. Um, and this is going to get me in trouble for saying this. But uh, I had a, a group of friends that we were all founders together in Boulder many, many years ago. And kind of had an, a, it was a little bit of a joke, but it was a little bit true. And it was that we will not hire MBAs in our startups, <laughs> okay. you know? Um, and again, like I said, there was a little bit of humor in it, but my hypothesis is no, because generally speaking, and I think this is definitely changing too, but you know, generally speaking, MBAs are um, being trained for, to operate in larger companies. Um, you know, this is often a career advancement move that comes with that degree. It's very much a professional degree. And those larger companies are in the business of ex exploitation and not exploration. So you want an MBA to optimize processes, not, not iterate concepts and ideas. So mm -hmm. I would say they would be less likely to embrace. Yeah. And that's exactly what the paper shows. <laughs> <laughs> so you hit the checkbox. Moreover, the explanation they gave is also exactly the same. So they were saying, look, MBAs are trained to do learn by thinking mm -hmm. and less learn by acting. Mm -hmm. Whereas, of course, the lean startup approach is really a learn by acting approach and less a learn by thinking approach. Nevertheless, one interesting thing that emerged was so they found in their data that teams that had MBA students were less likely to use it. But if they did, they were more successful in applying it. So that is quite interesting. So if teams with MBA students were applying extensively the Lean Startup approach, then they're actually more successful than teams without an MBA student. Mm -hmm. So they seem to be less inclined to do it, but actually more able to do it. Interesting. I guess that doesn't surprise me, right? Like an MBA is an advanced business degree, you know? I yeah. mean, you definitely have, tend to be pretty career motivated people. Yeah. Um, 
So it doesn't surprise me. I, I mean, I have to say, like, some of the most impressive founders I've met in recent years, especially coming out of the Vejo ecosystem, yeah. are MBAs, yeah. without question. So if you can take the, the kind of tangible, practical tool, business tools that they gain in that type of education, combine it with their experience working in larger organizations, and then bring this ethos in it, I could see that could be a, 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 a recipe for success. For sure. Yeah, that was also a bit my learning. So if you're able to convert them to embrace this kind of tools, which doesn't come natural to them, because indeed they often have already quite some experience in a consulting context or a corporate context, and that's really about execution and learning by thinking more. But if you're able to convert their thinking, they're actually very able to apply these tools and can be very successful with them. So uh, I'm going to throw in probably my typical approach on one of these things, but um, in my first venture-backed startup, it was an enterprise SaaS, mm -hmm. and my head of product, he was the head of product of Intuit pro previously, he was a dogmatic, lean customer development guy, and we had intellectual battles and sometimes verbal battles over this over this topic right okay. which is how do you how do you implement lean startup in contexts that you don't have the customer yeah. in the center right so when you're dealing if you're selling to a large you know multinational right you don't necessarily have the space to iterate and learn from them, it's not like you can put out a rough MVP, yeah. integrate with a you know a legacy ERP or whatever that might be, and then figure it out as you go, yeah. right? So in that case, you're you're still testing hypotheses, but you're not necessarily getting clear answers. Yeah. You know, you might be reducing some risk, but you're still operating with a whole lot of assumptions. So maybe in in high order principle. It, it can still be in place, but when you kind of look at the look at the process that's being executed on the ground, it becomes really difficult. The reason I kind of brought that up too is when you think of enterprise companies, mm. um, generally successful founders and successful staff are people that have industry and domain expertise. Yeah. That means you want to have people in these startups that have worked for those companies and, and in those in those industries prior. So I think it'd be really interesting to see, to understand, you know, I, I feel like I always ask you this question, but to have that same study, but understanding what the business is. Yeah. You know, if, if you're a consumer internet product or an app that you download from the app store versus a, you know, a, a deep tech SaaS that you're selling to multinationals. Yeah, and to be honest, I, I don't, I don't now remember. I, I should have to check the paper again because so they highlight in the paper we we check some boundary conditions and they call them this MBA students yes or no a boundary condition. But I, I agree with you. An even more important boundary condition would be is it a B two C or a B two B business? Because at least it's less straightforward to apply this whole approach in a B two B setting. Now that that's also what we learn in in our in our teaching at WAU. It's always like this approach has been developed in a B2C setting, and if you want to translate it into a B2B setting, it will require a bit more creativity to apply the kind of recommendations that they bring forward, because indeed, bringing a shitty MVP to your customer might not be the most successful approach in that particular setting. Yeah, I mean, if you have such a big, you know, dynamic power differential between yeah. the two, like, you don't have that 
you don't have that luxury. Yeah. I think there would be some really interesting research too, because when I was raising capital for that company now over 10 years ago, um, how investors would ask questions about your kind of lean approach. Yeah. And it was, it was kind of the blueprint that people expected. I don't hear VCs and investors talk about that as much anymore. And I don't know if it's because where, where I am and the, the kind of increasing focus on B2B, yeah. um, or if it's just fading out of fashion <laughs> in, you know, in the practitioner world. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like it's... There might be a new hype textbook <laughs> now that's... <laughs> yeah, it could be, right? Like, yeah. um, but I mean, if you think about even the, the tech stacks you're dealing with right now, right? Yeah. Like, you're thinking of, you know, machine learning or, or AI, right? Like, sure, you can evolve your algorithms and stuff, but you need certain levels of function. Yeah. You know, it's not like the early days of Facebook where you just had this rough prototype out there and we're just going to keep A-B testing until yeah. something sticks. Yeah. And I think also the, the whole philosophy of first break things and then repair is also a bit uh, increasingly questioned, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And yeah, it comes with a lot of implications. What I remember hearing it the other day that, you know, uh, Facebook's had this mantra of like move fast and break things, right? Yeah. And now it's something like move, like move fast and break things as long as they don't hurt anybody. Else. <laughs> 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 oh. Cool, good one, good one. Always, always an interesting one. You know, I think it inspired me to. That book is the Lean Startup book is it's such required reading that it's almost cliche yeah. now. You know, but. Um, but there, I would say it played a pretty significant role in the but most actually, recent generation. The final thing, I'm still surprised. So when I do this, for instance, I also teach executive teaching for companies. I'm always surprised if I then just ask at the beginning of the session how many people know the Lean Start approach that maybe 10, 20% heard about it and 18, 90% has never heard about it. And it's like, whoa, this is really a different world, you know? What I find even more troubling is when I talk to, if I talk to a hundred people that have read the Lean Startup, like five of them know what customer development is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn the tables on myself and tell you something I would say 180 degree different from what, uh, what we just talked about. Okay. And it's in the world of finance and investing. Okay. Which frankly, especially like, you know, stock market investing and public company investing is not something I know a whole lot about. So that's probably why it, uh, it made me learn and made me think as well. But um, just like on the last episode I, that we did, I was listening to the Acquired podcast okay. recently. And um, I listened to... Uh, the episode on Berkshire Hathaway. So I've always kind of been fascinated by Warren Buffett, you know, this yeah. eclectic guy that still lives in the small house in Omaha, Nebraska and drinks coffee at McDonald's <laughs> every morning and is worth over a hundred billion dollars. Um, so it was really interesting to kind of hear his life story that started even, you know, a few generations before he was born and kind of understanding that, uh, that trajectory. Um, but 
what was interesting about this was Buffett's initial kind of core strategy to investing was something called cigar butt investing okay. that I'd never heard of before. Um, before I explain to you what that is, like I'll tell you kind of how he kind of got to it. So Buffett, you know, came from a small town um, or small town back then, in rural Nebraska, and uh, decided to apply for an MBA at Columbia. And he actually got rejected by by Harvard, which was funny. And at this point, he was he was 19 years old when he finished his bachelor's degree, okay. and this is like 1949 or something. And he had already saved fifty thousand dollars, just hustling, doing doing different things. He bought like a working farm. He did all these small investments. And back then, that he was like, you know, in today's terms, like getting close to a millionaire. Yeah. Right. And um, so he was this super sharp kid. He was obsessed with his whole goal in life was and still is is to make money yeah and it's interesting thing it's not about spending it it's about being at the top of the scoreboard yeah right it's like a game for him and he wanted to make money so he could make the most you know and yeah. but not he didn't have those material desires to spend it on anything of course now he's giving you know 99 percent of it away but um so he always wanted to make money, and he was fascinated by the world of finance. And if you go back to the U.S. in the late 40s and early 50s, um, being a, you know a white Protestant kid from uh, Nebraska, he was an outsider. Mm. the The finance world was centered in New York. It was mostly Jewish people mm. that were the fin financiers, and here comes this kid, you know, from rural middle state saying, I want to be a finance guy. And, um, but he was, uh, there was one professor at Columbia that he was fascinated with, that he wanted to work with, and his name was Benjamin Graham. Benjamin Graham was, a, even back then, a, a famous investor. He was, of course, a professor. And he wrote kind of two of the seminal books on investing in the 40s and 50s. One was called, or even 30s, one was called Security Analysis, which was really kind of breaking down how to invest in securities in 1934. And then probably his most famous one was called The Intelligent Investor, which he wrote in 1949. So, so Buffett convinced this guy to let him in. And, um, and he started kind of working, working closely with him. And he started his first semester at, uh, at Columbia, and he didn't get to take a course with Graham until the second semester. Okay. But so he started researching Graham's investments. And uh, one of the investments that he found really interesting was uh, an insurance company. And, uh, and he wanted to, and he had a little bit of money, and he wanted to understand like why he was making that investment. He kind of wanted to impress him. So when he went into his class the next semester, so this company was called uh, Government Employees Insurance Company. Uh, the acronym for that is Geico. Oh, and okay. I'm not sure if you've ever yeah. if you've been in the U.S. You see the little lizard selling. <laughs> you see the commercials when you're in the U.S. quite often. Uh, yeah, that's right. So he literally went to Geico, like went to their headquarters, knocked on the door, convinced a security guard, basically said, hey, I'm a student of Ben Graham, he's chairman of the board, you gotta let me in and let me talk to, and ends up talking to like the CFO of the company and, and spent like four or five hours with him and ended up putting all of his money 
into investing in Geico. And then when he started the next semester with his professor, Ben Graham, uh, Ben Graham was not impressed because he literally put all of his money into yeah. it instead of diversifying it. So he didn't start things off on a good note, but he, his, uh, his swagger and his hustle impressed Graham, so he started kind of mentoring him. So point being, Graham had a, a pretty interesting philosophy towards investment. He didn't even look at the product or the service of the company he was investing in. Okay. He, didn't care what, he didn't care what they made. He did not care what they did. He looked at just a handful of core metrics. That, okay. And the concept behind this is what he calls cigar butt investing. And what cigar butt investing is, you know, in a simplified way, it's an approach that focuses on buying beaten down companies. Mm -hmm. You know, companies that are kind of losing, losing their, their market cap and they're trading below what one would conservatively estimate their liquidation value to mm -hmm. be. So, like, if you think of an example, think of a company. Maybe it's got a you know it's got a three billion euro market cap. Right? That means the the stock shares that are issued out there are collectively worth three billion based on the current share price. Um, however, that company maybe it's a big manufacturer and it's got plants and equipment and facilities that are worth five billion. No. Right. So that means it would be possible to acquire that company for three billion, try to turn it around, and even if you're not able to turn it around, you liquidate it and you still end up making a profit. Hence it's a very low risk opportunity to try to get in, involved in a company. No. So that's what Graham did. He just looked for distressed assets where the asset value was worth more than than the market cap. So it's be now called the private equity game, not a bit. It is, it is. And this is a point I think I'll get to a little bit that we can kind of dig deeper yeah. into what does this look like now. But I mean, the, the whole analogy, why is it a cigar butt, you know? Um, but Graham used to tell the story and, uh, and so, did, um, so did Buffett. But like imagine you find, so back in the old days in New York, men would smoke cigars and they'd just throw them in the, in the street, right? So in the gutter of the street, you would see all of these, you know, partially smoked cigar butts. And the analogy was, you know, if you could pick up one of these cigar butts and still get some puffs of, of smoke off of it, it may not be like the best smoke, but the fact that you can pick it up off the street, acquire it for nothing, and get something out of it ensures that that transaction is essentially profitable. Right? Yeah. So one of the reasons that Graham loved this and Buffett ended up loving it too is because they both believed that there's no such thing as a stock market expert. No. They don't exist because nobody can predict the future. That's why investors should only focus on the present and the past. That means they can put their attention on assets, liabilities, past earnings. That's it. Mm -hmm. Future projections are out of the equation. Yeah. Right? So that was pretty, pretty unique, actually, for the time. People weren't really thinking in those terms. So it was a very rational look at the now approach. Um, now, cigar butt investing turned out was very successful. They made quite a bit of money early on, but it also had some pretty, pretty significant downsides. So, you know, let's think about it. Like, what are the downsides? You're buying something that's cheap. It has a, it has a, a tangible asset value that's that's better, but 
one piece is, well, it may not be as cheap as it looks, right? You buy it, you, f you plug a hole, you fix something, and all of a sudden it's leaking somewhere else, right? Yeah. So it can start hemorrhaging problems that require greater input costs. And if that is indeed the case, the other problem is, is if it really is unfixable, you need to make sure you can sell those assets quickly before mm -hmm. it continues to decline. So if you don't have a, a market for whatever infrastructure that that thing holds, then, um, then you've got a pretty big problem and your kind of safety net is tossed out of the equation. Finally, of course, these types of companies, not all of them are those types of companies, right? Like you look at companies today, what are their assets? What are their assets? And are they things that are liquidatable? So, that was a, a, a long-winded introduction in, into cigar butt investing. This is where I think it gets fun and why I thought it was interesting. So what made this story so cool is that it's this cigar butt approach that led Warren Buffett to the biggest investment mistake he ever made. Okay. That investment was into a 180-year-old New England company that started as a textile mill. That company was called Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> so it was 1962, and one of Buffett's friends who lived in New York, who knew his investment approach, said, hey, there's this, there's this company you know, up in, in New England that you know, really seems to fit, may essentially fit your model. It's a failing textile mill. Most of the jobs in this small town are, are in this kind of textile plant. And its, uh, it's uh, stock price was $7.50, but its asset price, its asset value was $20 per share. Mm. So Buffett was you know, licking his chops. That was the thing he, the exact kind of deal. So he went up there, talked to the existing owners, and immediately negotiated a deal to buy at a little bit over $11 a share. Okay. So makes everybody happy. However, the, the existing owner, and he wasn't going to buy it all, he was just buying a, a position. The existing owner of the mill um, put out a press release that said Buffett was buying it at a different price. And it was only a couple cents difference. But Buffett was so enraged that this guy's handshake deal was inauthentic. He went on a tear and he decided he was going to buy the whole thing. Okay. So um, this very kind of usually calm and collected guy was so enraged by that process that, uh, that he went out and essentially bought the whole company out from under him. Here's his, his quote that he says about this. Buffett says, yeah. so I bought my cigar butt and I tried to smoke it. You walk down the street and you see a cigar butt. It's kind of soggy, disgusting, and repels you. But it's free, and there may be one puff left in it. Berkshire didn't have any more puffs. All you had was a soggy cigar butt in your mouth. That was Berkshire Hathaway in 1965. I had a lot of money tied up in that cigar butt. I would have been better off if I'd never heard of it in the first place. So Berkshire was a total disaster. Cigar butt failed, approach failed. Eventually, he would kind of get Berkshire to abandon the textile business. And he ended up buying a large stake using that infrastructure, buying a large stake in government employees insurance company, Geico, okay. <laughs> which ended up becoming the foundation of the massive, you know, top 10 largest companies in the world, 
Berkshire Hathaway today. Buffett claims that by acquiring Berkshire out of spite, rather than just taking that money and investing it directly into Geico, that deal cost him over $200 billion in compounded investment returns over the past 45 years. $200 billion. One angry mistake cost him $200 billion. So, Dries, my long-winded, long-winded story. This got me thinking. In our increasingly kind of technological world, where assets are less about equipment and tools and warehouses and manufacturing plants, and much more about intellectual property and data and tech, do you think this approach is outdated? Or do you envision there may be some industries um, in the 21st century world where this might still be relevant? I would say in general that it's outdated because I think because technology is changing so quickly that I think the assets that were very relevant 10 years ago will have very limited value nowadays. And as you mentioned, I think a lot of the valuable assets of most companies today are human assets. And if you put these assets in a distressed company, I think also their value will go down drastically because they get demotivated or they simply leave. So in that way, I think I, I have difficulties to see the relevance of that approach nowadays. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, so that's what I think, too. Mm. Yesterday, I went out and had a, a few beers with a friend who is a, a C-level in a Docs or 100 company. I asked him this question. Okay. He, his eyes lit up. And he, what we, you and I just agreed on, he completely shut down. Okay. Completely. And one of the first examples is, you know, the company that he's involved in. And he said, you know, this is like, we've got like a three billion market cap, but we have 10 billion in assets mm -hmm. sitting there. And he said, you know, like, like many companies in Germany, we have, uh, we have liabilities, pension funds, you know, you have a large, you generally, in older companies in Germany, you have more pensioners than you have employees, usually 25 to 50% more. Mm -hmm. um, so there's liabilities that exist there, but there's float and there's other things that kind of balance that out. But his argument was, he would estimate that a huge part of the current 20, you know, 2022 German economy might fall into this cigar butt category, okay. especially when you think of how the backbone of the German economy was built on manufacturing yeah. and how investor, the way investors perceive those companies as being in decline. Yeah. Right? And maybe we'll talk about that on my next topic that I'll, I'll bring up. But the idea being is investors aren't feeling particularly bullish on many of the large German corporates. Yeah. They have huge assets, you know, because of what they've been what industries many of them are in. And maybe the Warren Buffett of 1950 would be raiding the hell out of the German corporate ecosystem today. And that's what our conversation over a beer last night got to is like, you know, when does BlackRock and some of these other massive hedge funds start seeing German companies as distressed assets? 
and looking for opportunities to jump in, turn them around, or liquidate them all together. Yeah. Now, I would still be a bit skeptical about the ability to turn around because I think a huge part of the turnaround that you will need to do today is to digitalize companies. And I think digitalization is for me a topic where you typically see that the assets that you had might have limited value for what you need, even human assets. I've, I, use in, I do a course on digital transformation. I always use a, an example of a Belgian telecommunications company. So that would, I think, fit in your, because they have a lot of assets up, up, up. But so they announced, for instance, that they would uh, restructure because they need to digitalize. And they say, look, we are firing 2,500 people. And at the same time, we are hiring 1,900. So for them, the conclusion was our current assets, the people, they will not be able to transform in a way that we need for the new generation of our products, which is quite a, yeah, a depressing <laughs> message to these people that needed to be fired. But I think it also shows the challenges that this kind of companies, industrial companies, face in an age of digitalization. So there, I would be a bit skeptical about the ability to apply this approach in a context where you need to really digitalize to a large extent. Right, right. That would yeah. be my, my concern here. Right, that those companies aren't salvageable in the yeah. context in which they are, for sure. You know, it did also get me thinking, being a startup guy and not being a corporate guy, is like, how does a, could this context of cigar butt investing apply to startups? Historically, probably not, right? You think they don't have a lot of assets, no. right? What are you going to liquidate? Um, and I mean, every, every preferred investor that's ever made an investor in a startup, when that thing closes down, they end up getting those assets or divvying them up, and very rarely do they have any worth. However, in this day and age where IP gets really interesting, you know, algorithms can have value. There's certain things that can be repurposed for other uses. Um, it just made me wonder if this cigar butt approach uh, could think, have some think, value at the startup level. Think about quick delivery. If you see the current trends, I think, to be honest, maybe Getir is doing a good job if they will acquire Gorillas because it will be at a much lower price, but you get a lot of assets. So I think, for me, that's a scenario where I indeed see this theory working out. Yeah, or think about a Klarna or that kind of stuff. Or the, I think the mobility scooters, yeah. right? Yeah. One wins, what the hell's gonna happen to all those other color scooters? Yeah. Other than vigilantes piling them and lighting them on fire. <laughs> I was walking down the street with my son the other day, I was like, sometimes I daydream about kicking these scooters off the, the sidewalk, putting them in a big pile and lighting them on a big bonfire. And my son goes, Dad, that is an exact, <laughs> that is the exact story of a South Park episode. <laughs> I was like, shit. <laughs> All right. Sorry for my long-winded story there. Your turn, Dries. Next one. Something that made you think. Yes, this made me think, and this is um, a bit different from things that I have discussed in the past, but I thought it would be interesting to briefly talk about it. This is a paper. And again, let me first uh, do the title, The Entrepreneurial Story and Its Implications for Research by Anna Bradström and Carl Wenberg, which was published earlier this year in Entrepreneurship Theory and Practice. And in contrast to most of the papers that I bring to the podcast, which are typically the kind of hardcore quantitative papers where they test relationship using fancy data, 
This is a very different type of paper. It's a paper actually that is more kind of a critical paper that urges academic scholars to think about how are we doing research. And this paper mainly focuses on how are we doing research on the topic of entrepreneurship. And so what these scholars argue is, look, not only entrepreneurs, but academics need to pay a lot of attention to storytelling. Yeah? So when we write a paper, you also have to think about how will I tell the story to my audience? Who is my audience? How can I tell the story? Um, that these are important things to think about. Uh, because in the end, uh, some people might not think that, but academics also have to sell their paper. Mm -hmm. So in the end, you typically see, if you look at research, particular storylines emerging on certain topics. And so what these authors did was to look at, okay, if we look at existing entrepreneurship research, what kind of storylines are actually used to talk about entrepreneurship and about founders? And they came to the conclusion, and we can discuss about it, that actually the amount of storylines that are out there is actually quite limited. So their claim is actually, if we look at how academics talk about entrepreneurs, they typically use two kind of storylines. So one, they call it entrepreneurship as salvation. And this is a storyline where you have a very smart, eager entrepreneur that is very bold, risk-taking, and by demonstrating that kind of behavior, he's disrupting an industry, creating new wealth, and becoming extremely rich, him or herself. That's one storyline that you would typically see in research on entrepreneurship. And the second one is more entrepreneurship as emancipation. And here the storyline would be entrepreneurship is actually a way in which people that typically tend to be in a kind of disadvantaged position, I think about migrants, mm -hmm. but also to some extent uh, females nowadays. So it, it gives them an opportunity to start from a kind of um, not privileged position and actually break out of all the boundaries and become successful against all odds. And so the others are saying, these are the two stories that we see, and as such, they are important and, and representative to some extent for some entrepreneurial trajectories. But they also argue that they definitely do not capture the full spectrum of entrepreneurship that we see in reality. So what they argue is, look, these two storylines that we heavily see in research represent part of the reality but definitely not the full package of reality that we see outside uh, in the world of entrepreneurs. So my question to you, Garrett, <laughs> based on your experience, what storylines are academic scholars missing? Do you see different storylines or? All of them are different to me, yeah, because I mean, we've had these discussions in the past and like, I am not done with my PhD on the topic <laughs> of entrepreneurship. And, and I, I find so much research in this space to just be painful bloviation at times. What do you mean by that? The words that I use, maybe it's crude for this, but I think I've dropped some curse words in the past. But <laughs> to me, a lot of entrepreneurship research is like intellectual masturbation. Yeah. It's literally like totally divorced from 
the practitioner's world and it's someone that has very little tangible understanding of the experience describing their observations right? Yeah. In, in a lot of ways. And, and the way you kind of talk about it as salvation and emancipation, it's very kind of descriptive and external. Um, and that's where I see that's, that's missing a lot. And I, I, I'll preface it by saying a couple things. Like one thing that I talk about a lot that I have trouble with the literature around entrepreneurship mm -hmm. is the unit of analysis. Yeah. And I would say business in, in general, right? Yeah. And you know, what is the unit of analysis? Is it the firm? Is it the individual? Interestingly, you used examples when you talked about salvation and emancipation as the individual, yeah. as the unit of analysis. I do feel like there should be more of yeah. those types of examples. But then there's the other side too, which is like, you know, how do the, what is what does salvation look like when you're, or what does emancipation look like when you're talking about the firm, right? Is that like you know, achieving market share and leading to exit, like, um, point being, there was a little bit of a tangent. The thing that I find profoundly missing is a lot of the research describes the what and not enough of the why and the how. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, how we kick things off talking about the lean startup, Yeah. you know, like that is, there is, it, it's certainly an incomplete small picture, but it does provide some very tangible, you know, methods and ways of thinking that can be extremely valuable mm. to entrepreneurs. Yeah. Um, other than, I'll throw a plug, but other than my one entrepreneurial scholar that I really love, which is Sarah Sarasvati, yeah. and I think she does provide very, very tangible things that can be useful for practitioners. Yeah. I just don't see enough yeah. of like, give me something that I can take into my, into my practice. So I don't know if that's a storyline necessarily. No, but I think your response kind of represents, and this is a debate that's going on for the, in the academic world itself already for a long time. It's the, the discussion about relevance versus rigor. And, and let me be blunt here. I think Sarasvati has a very relevant theory. It's not rigorous at all. If you see the data that she collected to kind of substantiate this whole theory of effectuation, it's very thin. It's thin. It's I mean, thin. that's qualitative research it's, though, right? That I thought would be dense. Yeah. And I'm, I have nothing against qualitative research, let me clear, because I have done a lot of qualitative research myself. But based on a limited number of interviews, making such strong, I would say, normative statements, mm -hmm from an academic perspective is a bit questionable, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So I think Sarasvati for me, and again, I use her myself in my teaching, huh? so don't get me wrong here. Why do I use her in my teaching? Because she scores very high on the relevance, yeah. right. but maybe not that high on the rigor. Right. And I think that's always a kind of dilemma that we are facing as academics. And to some extent, I, is, I think it's a trade-off. And I think you have a very, very good point. A lot of entrepreneurship research focus on the what and less on the how and the why. Again, why? Because it's much easier to do rigorous research on the what. Right. And much, it's much more difficult to do that on the how and the why. I think that that shouldn't be an excuse. I agree with you that we should try to do more on the how and the why, even if it's hard, yeah, then, then it's hard, but we should do it. 
but I think at least that explains to some extent the current state of the of the research. So you know, you talk about relevance and, and rigor, right? And I certainly understand there is a bit of a, a divide there. But then you look at the context of, and you can answer this much better than me, so it's, I should probably frame it as a question. But you look at the the professional environment of a researcher yeah. and an academic, right? Like at least in some places, and I know this is not universal, but in some places your career trajectory is tied to the rigor of your research, yeah. more so than the quality of your your teaching. Yeah. Right? And at least, at, at, you know, I can speak at very high level terms, but if you're teaching young people that one day want to be practitioners, re relevance will win the day. Yeah. If you're speaking amongst your peers, that are also academics and you know you're trying to get tenure or something like that then i think rigor wins the day so is this a systemic <laughs> it, are we dealing with a systemic dynamic that leads to this or is it is it just that you know researchers like playing in the rigor space you know like the pub publishing more than the teaching or what do you think contributes to that I think the institutional, I don't know if it's a problem. I, let me say the institutional reality is that, especially I would say in European schools, what, what is the game you need to play as a professor? You first need to demonstrate your ability to do extremely rigorous research. When you have done that and you got your tenure and you became a full professor, then you can start working on your relevance. That's, that's even the career advice that you get. So, and I think actually also in U.S. schools, the story is like first you spend six years in your tenure track as an assistant professor, and it's all about publishing in these top-level journals, which means doing extremely rigorous research, but sometimes a bit less relevant <laughs> because it needs to be so accurate, the data needs to be so good that often you face a lot of limitations in terms of relevance. And then later on, you can start to do the, the, the relevance. I, for instance, I think a school like Harvard is different. But uh, I think in most schools, th that's the story. Um, and I think, is that a good way to do it? I don't know. But let, and again, it's more an, a question that I ask to myself. For instance, I think an interesting question is, would Steve Blank be able to become a professor in a European business school? My answer, I think, is no. Mm -hmm. Honorary, yes. Honorary, yes, but the word honorary should be really there. Yeah. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? At the same time, I also sometimes feel a bit uneasy that you have all these gurus making very big statements without any academic backup where I'm also sometimes in doubt. So I see a lot of textbooks that are embraced by a lot of people, and when I look at it, and I look at the kind of data behind it, it's like, oh, this is, well, extremely thin. <laughs> so now we see that all companies start embracing these methods that actually, in terms of validation, have not been validated. And to some extent, that has been the criticism on the lean startup approach, that everybody was doing it, and we actually didn't know if it really worked or not. Um, and I think we will not be able to solve this. It will always, to some extent, be a dilemma, but I think at least we should be aware of it. Yeah. That, that's, for me, the first step, that we are aware about there is a rigor or relevance tension, 
And, and for instance, to be honest, in my own career, I've been definitely in the first decade of my career been focusing on rigor, and today I'm focusing much more on relevance. Uh, and I think that's okay, but it all has limitations. I mean, would you say that, I, I know you kind of spent a lot of your kind of first part of your career really focusing on innovation, and I think now yeah. you're, you're moving more towards the entrepreneurship realm, right? So yeah. this was the, one of the points I was gonna make, and I think you prefaced it really nicely, which is more of a question, is the domain relevant to this dynamic? And the reason I ask is, I find that, you know, I, I'm on my third degree on my third different subject. And I've done research, obviously at different levels, but I've done research on, on different topics. And to me, entrepreneurship research is the least relevant that I've come across, nah. as opposed to studying development economics, where nah. a lot of the research was actually quite tangible to a practitioner, or you know, environmental policy, which was also quite relevant to me as a, as a young practitioner. When I read the entrepreneurship stuff, I think, as an entrepreneur, 99% of this stuff, it's not practical or useful for me to read. Now maybe if you were a corporate innovator or something that the re academic research might have some more relevance. <laughs> That's more of a question, but is, it, is entrepreneurship particularly irrelevant to the no, practitioner? I would actually say innovation is even less because 90% of the research on innovation is done with patent data which, to be honest, is actually bullshit, because yeah. patents are not innovations, they are inventions. Right. So th th that's even a more, I would say, if you think about practical relevance, to be honest, it's a bit a more depressing field, because, and I've been one of them myself, we have these scholars that are extremely kind of uh, specialized in how do you operationalize patterns in complex statistical regressions, and how can you clean them as clean as you can make them, and then we are making claims about innovation, whereas that should not be the case, it's invention. So I would definitely not argue that innovation is a more relevant field in terms of academic research. I actually think it's even more focused on rigor than entrepreneurship. Gotcha. You know, I just think of some of the, at least the, the business and management side of things, when you look at the, the academic research, like I would imagine there's some more relevant stuff in maybe marketing or finance or something where practitioners would be able to pull more than an entrepreneur, and I guess, as you say, maybe like an innovator. No, at the same time, I think there is a danger to, to claim that all academic research should be relevant. I think there needs to be room for simply hardcore, fundamental academic research that has no practical relevance. I think that's very important, not only in the physical science where they built colliders of 50 kilometers to <laughs> smash particles against each other, and nobody knows the practical relevance of that. It's just fundamental research. And in a similar way, I think it's, it's good that we have some entrepreneurship academics that do very fundamental research on asking questions about how startups function, why some are more successful than others. And hopefully, in the end, this can bring practical significance, but it should not always directly think, be practical. Odris, you finally found something I'm pushing hard back on. <laughs> and, you know, as someone that was in the development realm for a long time, yeah. and you're, 
you're talking about so much of the work in that space is about decolonization, right? Yeah. The decolonization of, of knowledge, of work, of experiences, of everything. And such a big problem, if you look at ethnography or you look at anthropology, right? It was the other coming in, studying, yeah. taking that information away for their own interests, not giving anything back. It doesn't surprise me, and it happens to me quite often, and I try to be very generous with my time, getting asked to participate in a research study mm -hmm. as, as a founder in the wild, right? Mm -hmm. And like, you know, founders are busy doing their things. They're not fucking zoo animals. <laughs> and if a researcher is gonna come and say, I want information from you, you sure as shit better have something to give yeah. in return because I'm yeah. giving you my time, I'm giving you insights into my experience. So I think if we wanna create a really nice synergistic environment where we're all benefiting one another, then that intellectual masturbation should yeah. be less, less. No, but I, I agree with your points. But again, because for instance, I've done a lot of case to the myself and indeed the first thing I was always thinking of how can I sell this to the company so that this is added value for them but I, again I think you can you you build up a research portfolio and so I'm okay with doing part of my portfolio extremely fundamental where I'm I'm even not concerned about the practical relevance but next to that I also want to do more practical research so I think you can think about the portfolio and I think also the weights in the portfolio can change over time so I definitely agree with you that a 100% portfolio, purely fundamental research, I think is, is quite a poor portfolio because then you might be speaking to five other nerds and nobody else can understand you. Um, a fully only focused on the practical side where actually you're making very strong claims but they are not backed up by fundamental research for me is also problematic. Sure, sure, sure. You gotta have some rigor, obviously. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. My turn. Yes. I'm going to be brief this time because I'm going to, I'm going to bring up something that made me think that I really don't know much about. Okay. Um, but it scares the shit out of me. And it's right in your wheelhouse. And, you know, I'm also not a, I mean, I am half German, but I'm not, like, wasn't raised in, in Europe. Um, and it just, I'd like to get your feedback. Mm. and get your thoughts on this. So just a couple days ago, uh, you're familiar with the OECD, the Organization yeah. for Economic Cooperation and Development. The OECD came out with the Review of Innovation Policy for Germany 2022. Okay. Uh, just last week or the week before. Um, it's entitled Building Agility for Successful Transitions. So I read this thing going, hmm, what does the OECD say about Germany's innovation, especially as I've been having some interesting conversations with other, other folks about this topic recently. And here's what they said, you know, Germany needs to adopt a more agile, risk tolerant and experimental approach to innovation policy if it's going to continue to lead in its historical core industries. And what they defined as historical core industries were automotive manufacturing, machinery, chemicals and pharmaceuticals. But what they're basically saying is they're slow moving, they're risk averse, and they're doing the same tried and true approaches over and over and over again and are losing their competitive edge. 
So they go on to say, um, they talk about the policy side of this thing. And they said, you know, the pandemic, the whole COVID-19 issue, and now more recently, uh, the war in Ukraine has further highlighted and exacerbated these weaknesses and vulnerabilities in Germany's economic model, specifically over-reliance on fossil fuels, Mm -hmm. uh, a painfully delayed digitalization process, Mm -hmm. and what we're seeing probably most significantly right now is a totally under-diversified supply chains. In the meantime, the rest of the world is being exposed to massive disruption from digital digital technologies and green green innovations and things of that sort. So I talked a little bit about how bad it is. And the one obviously for me that is interesting is the whole digitalization mm-hmm. side of things. I struggle with that word, both pronouncing it in my native tongue and also understanding what the hell it means. <laughs> I feel like it's one of those opaque words, but I get the, the general gist that they're really talking about the ICT sector. Um, And the share of ICT in Germany, in terms of sector investment in Germany, is 6.6%. It's the lowest of the G7 states. To put that in perspective, the US is 17%, and France is 18.5%. So frankly, not putting big investment or focus on it at all, mm-hmm. right? And I think, you know, Angela Merkel's, you know, uh, regime was kind of noted for not really putting enough attention. The kind of new Troika government was saying they were going to do more, but so far the numbers say that's not uh, necessarily the case. As a result of this lack of, you know, kind of focus on digitization and these types of industries, like there's a massive industry growing all over the world, autonomous driving. Germany should be in the lead in it, and they're absolutely lagging behind. Um, so the this kind of review study is basically talking about like a totally new approach to, to governing innovation policy that needs to be more flexible. They need to not only be more experimental, but also be experimental with policy design, i.e. maybe be a little lean in their way of developing these types of policies, focusing more on connectivity and data infrastructure, um, and just creating a regulatory environment that is more innovation friendly. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, they do talk about, you know, the dichotomy between creating this more like risk tolerant kind of uh, innovative experimental policy when there are still cultural cultural roots that may be shying away from that. Um, what they, I'll kind of wrap it up with this last piece they say, um, which is saying that they need more innovative reg- regulation and public procurement. Um, and if they kind of create this new kind of policy environment, that there will be kind of, uh, that will entail a couple different impacts, including kind of greater public and governmental support for medium and later stage venture capital, which I think we know is a pretty big gap here, Um, more risk finance, faster commercialization of impactful research, um, i.e. a lot of innovations getting stuck in the lab here and Mm. the tools to commercialize. Uh, are not there, but one, the last thing that struck me is not adding more funds to do this, 
but just using the funds that they already have allocated more effectively by committing to science, technology, and innovation. So mm -hmm. what they're basically saying is you don't have to, there's enough money in it that you don't have to change the public perception to, to throw more euros at the problem, but it's being so poorly managed through through policy and regulation that we're sitting on tremendous assets and literally the German economy is watching it melt away before their eyes and acting essentially paralyzed. I know that's pretty strong language. Um, I tried to like speak to this in the most uh, kind of benign way possible, but that paper scared the shit out of me. Mm. It was like, I mean, what we're talking about here is the brand Germany, the entire brand, the entire identity, the entire foundation of the economy in this country. Um, this was uh, red flags down the alarms, in my opinion. You're an innovation guy. Is that, does that sound about right? Yeah, for me, it makes a lot of sense. And I think especially the, the focus on digitalization for me is, is, is a very accurate one. And for me, it's at least my perspective on it is the core problem is the public investment in digitalization. Mm -hmm. I think if you look at private investments, at companies, I have the feeling that today companies understand that they need to invest in digitalization and that they're actually doing, but that the biggest problem is, is focused on the public part. And just to give you small examples, <laughs> I remember that when, my, when we moved from the Netherlands with my kids, they were shocked how, how they got taught in Germany. It was very rigorous teaching, but any sign of digitalization in the classroom is totally absent. Yeah? So in the Netherlands, they were teaching with an uh, electric whiteboard where the teacher would show YouTube movies, where they would uh, all get an iPad to work on. And here, the most sophisticated digital tool that they have is a separate room with five old computers where they can barely use Word <laughs> to type a text. And I think that's quite dramatic. If, if your infrastructure at schools is totally lacking any sign of digitalization, and these are the people that should bring our country forward in the next 20 years. And if you see how in other countries people get education, I think we are creating a huge disadvantage. Um, so for me, to be honest, the question is, is in terms of digitalization, did Germany just miss the boat and we're screwed? Or is there still an opportunity to catch up? And I think it should happen very quickly if we need to catch up. And I see very limited signs of the awareness of the urgency to do so. So I'm not like you, not optimistic about that. I think in terms of digitalization, we're facing huge challenges and you see a lot of small examples. I remember there was this discussion about uh, how can we return money to the individuals uh, to compensate for the increasing gas bills and that they were simply saying, yeah, we cannot do this because at the moment, we cannot, we don't have the bank accounts of individuals in our country and it would take us eight months to send out money to every individual. <laughs> and these are like the so, such kind of basic things that you think like, oh my God, they even don't have a kind of central registry of people in Germany that simply doesn't exist. And there are, uh, there are historical reasons why that's a difficult topic in Germany. There is a lot of 
even with most Germans, I would say a lot of kind of skepticism. But I think you need to be realistic and see what is happening in other countries. And at a certain point, I think you need to take this leap of faith and accept that digitalization is simply necessary. Otherwise, you're, you're simply committing suicide to yourself as an economic country, I think. Do you think it's a, a policy and governance problem, or do you see it as a cultural sea change that is required? Like, you know, one of the things that I think about all the time, and we can, we can, I'm sure we could spend hours identifying like the analog world that kind of exists here in some cases, but mm. I don't think, I think if I, you know, I've been in Germany again this time for four years, and if I look at the past four or five years before that, I'm pretty sure I never re received a piece of mail in my mailbox that wasn't junk. Yeah. I get mail that's relevant like every day now. <laughs> the, the thought of having to check my mailbox, like I, I think back in Colorado, I might have checked my mailbox every three months yeah. just because there was a bunch of like crap flyers in there that I needed to clean it out. Yeah. Now it's, I can't function without it. Yeah. You know, I have stacks of paper. I try to live a paperless life. I have stacks of papers sitting on my desk. Like, and I'm asking myself is, if you think of kind of supply and demand, like is this, is this, you know, we talked about lean, is this putting the customer at the center? Is this what they want? Um, are we dealing with a problem of an aging population? that is less likely to adapt to new technologies? Or, or is it something else? Is it the, the government not seeing this as an important priority? Because this has been a topic of conversation for quite a long time. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a combination of all these factors. I, I think it would be easy if it would be one thing, because then it's relatively easy to change. I think the problem is that it's so many things at the same time that makes it very difficult. So, so solution though, I mean, you can't just throw more money at it. Do you need different people leading the show? Like, I don't think Germany's quiet. Like, there's a lot of vocal voices that have been screaming this for a long time, but it doesn't seem that anyone's moving the needle. I think it, it might seem a bit uh, paradoxical, but you almost need to force people to trust digitalization to some extent. And I, I think that this will be the only way to do that. At some, at some point, somebody will say, look, OK, we know all your concerns, but we, know, we need a central registry of every person in Germany with a unique identifier. That's point one. And if we have a unique identifier, then you can start offering digital services to these people. And you need an identity card with this unique identifier so that we can find you. All these things don't exist in Germany, you know, which are the most straightforward things in all other countries. They don't exist in Germany. And as long as you don't have this basic infrastructure, you're screwed. Okay, well, I think that downer <laughs> yeah, should, be, should be good for something that, <laughs> that makes us laugh. So, Dries, take it away. Yes, uh, and actually also here I have a research paper. Uh, it's from uh, Research Policy, and you were actually talking about uh, your ongoing PhD, so in that <laughs> way it might be relevant. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's actually a paper called What Makes a Productive PhD Student? Mm -hmm. From Alberto Corsini, Michele Pezzoni, and Fabiana Vesantin. Mm -hmm. 
And so what do these, did these people do? They actually collected a huge amount of data on PhD students in France, uh, situated in the, the technology field, and they tried to find out why are some PhD students more productive than others. And to be honest, productivity is here defined in the typical way for academ academia in producing papers. And so um, they did some fancy statistics. And in the end, what is their finding? And I will just read it. We find that having a productive, mid-career, low-experienced female supervisor who benefits from a national grant is positively associated with the student's productivity. Yeah? So if you're a PhD student and your supervisor is not that old, not that experienced, is female and has a kind of big grant from, from which she gets a lot of money, that's the kind of setting the scene for you to become a productive PhD student. Controlling, of course, for all your individual characteristics. Mm. Now, why did that make me laugh? Because I myself don't meet any, any of these criteria. I'm, so I'm male. I'm actually quite far away in my career, so I have quite a lot of experience. And one thing I really hate is applying for national grants, so I don't have them. So on this checklist, I don't meet any of the criteria. So that made me think, like, am I now really screwing my PhD students? Or uh, is there a possibility that maybe this is only for French STEM PhD students? And is there still hope for uh, WAU PhD students uh, to survive under my supervision. <laughs> well, Dries, I heard you're pretty tough. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, like, did it really explain like why that that's the right profile? Like, what is the no? So this is really collecting the data, doing the statistical analytics. They did some efforts into addressing what we call endogeneity issues, so that they, to some extent, can make causal claims. But uh, you see also in the formulation, they're quite careful. They talk about a positive association, so not a pos positive causal effect. So I think they also realize that there are limitations to which they can make causal claims here. So you have to see it more as an association than really a relationship that can explain the why. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, yeah, it, it's just many of those things would be counterintuitive. Huh. Like, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, like, I wouldn't not, I think gender, I could actually see it makes sense, you know, women tend to operate in a little bit different ways than men, they may operate from the heart rather than from the mind, you know, gross generalization, of course, but like, un, you know, more junior, there were some of the things that make you go, huh, yeah. like, do you know, do you know about uh, the one piece I, I don't want to turn something funny a little too serious, but um, <laughs> the hierarchical kind of more distant relationship between educator and student to me is noticeable in Germany as compared to in the US. Like mm. when I was an undergrad student, like we would sometimes have beers with our prof, yeah. you know? Like it was a very laid back, you know, informal type relationship. I came to Germany and you could tell there was a much greater power dynamic. The professors seemed to maybe be 
rule over their fiefdom a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so it was just very formal, at mm. least, you know? Some, obviously, not everyone was the same, but there was more formal structure in place. Like, is, do you know if it's like more like that in France? Like, yeah, yeah, I think also France is quite hierarchical. Also because I think that, that for me, I think that's, because I have thought a bit about that, um, because not only you, but I, I know stories from other Americans that talk about, oh, I had this very nice relationship with my professor as an undergrad, and then I was thinking, like, that would never happen in Europe. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, why? And I don't think that we in, in Europe are more asshole professors than the American ones, but I think it, it has simply to do with the size of the classes. Mm -hmm. So also, definitely in France, you would typically teach a class of 300 students, mm -hmm where the, 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 the focal way to educate is you standing in front of a room with 300 people and you teach them and that's the teaching. Whereas I think in the US it's much more normal to have kind of smaller sessions mm -hmm. where you really engage in discussion with the students. So it's, it's not just knowledge transfer from the teacher to the student. I think it's more engaged, but I think the setup of universities in Europe, where most of the schools, the, the size of the class is quite large, it becomes very difficult to do that. Mm, right, right. Huh. Yeah, I mean, this topic was talking about PhDs, you know, in particular, yeah. right? And those are usually pretty small settings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but, but I, I think at the PhD level, I, I would not say, I think there I've seen also in... Also in France and also in, in Belgium, Germany, quite intensive interactions between the PhD students and the, and the professors. I think, yeah, there might be still a kind of generational problem. I think the, the current generation, I think we do more like the US style of way with the PhD students, where we see it more as a collaboration than a very hierarchical relationship. I think there is a generation I would say that I don't know, in the 60s, whatever, th that might still see it a bit hierarchical, but I think if you look at the younger generation, I think that's quite rare, I would say. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think I look at like my uncle and you know, the, my family members in Germany that are in their 70s now, yeah. and when they own their businesses and work, they, they didn't fraternize with the staff, no, yeah, no, right? No. It was very much like, you work for me, I'm the boss, I see you during the day, and then you, you don't ask me about my personal life or anything like that. And it seems like that's breaking down a little bit more. I imagine yeah. academia kind of mirrors that as well. Yeah, I think yeah. that's that's yeah. cool. Well, Dries, sorry, unless uh, gender reassignment is in your future, <laughs> you're going to have to find a different way to hustle I'm your students. Here. I'm doomed. <laughs> All right, last one for me. Um, it's kind of silly, but. Um, it, it did definitely make me chuckle. So, um, the state of Florida in the U.S., I don't know, there's this saying that they, they have these hilarious, like, um, uh, storylines, like, called, called Florida Man, and people have been aggregating these news articles of, like, crazy things that people in Florida do, man. F Florida Man wrestles, wrestles an alligator for his Rolex, or, like, <laughs> Florida Man walks into police station asking to buy drugs. Like, you know, these ridiculous kind of, kind of things. So, naturally, this story comes out of the, the state of Florida. So, um, you know, there was recently a pretty big hurricane 
This yeah. is the beginning of hurricane season, and uh, Hurricane Ian hit uh, hit Florida pretty hard just recently. I think there was like a 130 people died, something like that, but uh, 70 billion US dollars in, in damage. So wasn't one of the massive ones, wasn't Katrina or something, but it was, it was still pretty big. Um, a pretty good sized Florida company, uh, it's called Postcard Mania. And you know, they have this like massive 70,000 square foot uh, facility in Florida. And uh, the, the hurricane was on its way and the governor of Florida declared a state of emergency, set up, you know, mandatory evacuations in certain places. And the CEO of Postcard Mania put out a, a message to her entire, her entire employee base uh, the Monday as the hurricane was hitting. And, um, she sent them this message that said, if you want to leave your home and you're being told to leave your home and you feel like you should, and you have no place to go, postcard mania is probably the safest place to be in Florida. <laughs> anyway, bring your pets, bring your kids, bring everybody to PCM. Um, come do work. We need to support we need to support our customers even in the hardest of times. It will send a positive message to all the customers of Postcard Mania how dedicated and committed we are to supporting our customers. Um, she sent mass email to all of her, uh, her entire employee base saying, come to work, ride it out through the storm. This is the safe building. Bring your whole families. And then, you know, while you're here, go ahead <laughs> and work. Um, problematic to begin with, but uh, the worst part of it is as she was texting this message, one of her employees saw her texting it as she was feverishly driving away in the other direction <laughs> in, her, in her vehicle. So again, you know, it just made me think as like more and more employees post-COVID come back and work at the office. Like you sure as shit can count on someone in Florida to take it, <laughs> take it to the extreme. Nice. Dries, once again, so fun. So glad you came here. Yes, to, it was nice to, to do this live space. Yeah, we need to do more of these. We need to do them in person. Next time I'll, I'll come back to follow there. <laughs> but, um, or Dusseldorf. Or Dusseldorf. I think we do have that planned in our, in our future. Um, but I believe our next episodes coming up are going to be with some interesting founders and innovators again. So um, they don't have to keep listening to our our ramblings and and gentle disagreements but great to see you uh have a great time at stage two and and hopefully Vejo represents uh represents big time yes footprint that we've created well folks that's a wrap on the latest inspiration session much thanks to my co-host professor Dries Fahms for joining us with his insights once again Stay tuned for our next episode coming out in a few weeks. And as usual, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on your favorite streaming service. And if you didn't like it, just skip that part. This makes this small.